Section 18 from Letters from Victorian Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas, Melbourne, Victoria. Letters from Victorian Pioneers. Letter 18 from Captain Foster Fyans. Arrived by order of General Sir Richard Burke at Geelong in 1847, where, according to the General's directions, I was to take an absconded felon on my staff. This man had been a resident near Geelong for thirty-three years, and was therefore well acquainted with all the natives in that locality. My orders from the General, being to assemble as many of the natives as possible, for the purposes of knowing their numbers in this part, due notice was given, and we succeeded in making a large muster of two hundred and seventy-five of all classes, men, women, and children. The general sent bales of blankets, slop clothing, dresses for the females, shoes, and a large quantity of flour and tea, and two dozen of tomahawks, not issued but thrown into the Moorable River. These articles were all divided among the natives. Unfortunately, a few blankets were deficient, whereupon the native men unprovided set up a yell, and became almost frantic, a state of things which instantaneously became general, and the assembly demanded more and more every minute. Fearing bad results from my visitors, from their general demeanour and manner, and becoming somewhat apprehensive, I ordered my two constables to load, and my ten convicts to fall in close to my hut. The natives saw this preparation, and I kept some distance from them with my double-barrel gun, accompanied by Mr. Patrick McKeever, district constable also armed. It had the effect of making the natives retire, the interpreter Buckley telling them to do so. I was exceedingly happy at the result, not having the slightest trust in Buckley, and, I may now add, my conviction is that the natives assembled wishing an opportunity to murder every person in the place. After this escape, I never permitted more than a few to approach the place, when they were kindly treated and provided with some salt pork, which was not such a delicacy as mutton, but fresh meat was not to be had, and sheep were extremely dear and scarce. A few days followed. I saw a native in a rage take a child, giving it many blows, and eventually catching it by the leg and battering its head against a gum tree. This was on the opposite range of the river. On my arrival at the spot, which took some considerable time on account of the river winding so much, when I reached the tree, I found evident marks that the child had been killed and taken from the place, but there was not one native to be seen. A station at the Lee was attacked. Two men in charge defended a few hundred sheep, driving them before them to another station. I saw some four natives that had been shot dead. I investigated the affray and gave much credit to the men for their good conduct. Buninyong, only fifty miles from Geelong, was thought a great discovery. Some few of the settlers removed to that locality, where many disturbances took place. Shepherds were murdered and sheep stolen. On numerous occasions I have had to visit the place on complaint of the settlers, and also that I might have it in my power to gain information as to the reported depredations of the natives. I felt convinced of these depredations, and generally found the origin of theft and murder was from an over-intimacy on both sides, the women ruling, depraved and bad, so much of this existed that there was hardly a shepherd without disease. Large families of natives, husband, wife, boys and girls, were eaten up with venereal disease. The disorder was an introduction from Van Diemen's Land, and I am of the opinion that two-thirds of the natives of Port Phillip have died from this infection. During 1837 and 8 and 9, as the country began to be occupied, I had many journeys to stations of from 40 to 50 miles, Colac and Buninyong being the most distant. In all my investigations, I found where life was lost that blame was attributable to both sides. 
to the jealousy of the native and over-intimacy of the hut-keeper or shepherd, who was one day feeding the natives and the day following beating and driving them from the place. In 1840 I was made commissioner of Crown Lands. I had 18 troopers. These men were soldiers who were sentenced by court-martial when serving in America for desertion to transportation to New South Wales. I never met with a more orderly or steady set of men. They had their horses always in good order and were ready and willing to perform their duty. No pay was allowed by the government, and their only remuneration was the common ration. For the seven years I held the office of Commissioner of Crown Lands, I had only one man who left me. He deserted to Adelaide. Every man I had could have followed him, and that too well mounted. I am glad to say, to their credit, not a man followed his example. In 1839, the squatters in Portland Bay District were very limited in number, not exceeding a dozen. In 1840, very few joined them, and the revenue and licenses did not exceed £150. In 1842, the district began to become of some notice, and a vast number of most respectable establishments appeared. In 1843 and 1844, the district was rapidly filling, and during 1845 and 1846, there were 400 licenses granted in a country almost without a European in it in 1839, and nearly as large as England. Mr. Gisborne was the Commissioner of Crown Lands for Port Phillip, which was divided when I was appointed. I may remark on the Portland Bay District, knowing it for years, and having ridden over it some 34,000 miles, that a finer or a more beautiful country cannot be. There are parts sandy and barren, but generally the ground is useful, many parts possessing great advantages for pastoral purposes, and many bits of ground being fitted for immediate agricultural purposes, I may safely say, without an outlay for grubbing a tree, so different from New South Wales, where every one cleared is attended with a serious expense. The district is exceedingly well provided with water, many of the waterholes are everlasting, and there are besides reaches of rivers and many fine and valuable springs. In 1839, by order of Sir George Gipps, I left Geelong to proceed to Portland Bay. I was allowed three mounted police and seven horses. Mr. Smith of the Survey Department had orders to attend me. The distance is about 220 miles. At that time, the squatting stations were chiefly about the towns. We proceeded, bringing provisions on a pack horse. We experienced great difficulties and obstructions. In many instances, we had to return for miles, the country being impassable, and seek another route. We were two days endeavouring to cross the Stony Range, and had to return to Mount Eels without water. We found ourselves surrounded by, I suppose, a hundred and fifty natives, following us with their spears, yelling and brandishing their waddies. On leaving the range we halted at a tea-tree scrub, where we found water. We were cooking some pannikins of tea, when we heard the native cooey in every direction. This subsided. I suspected that the natives were close to us. I walked down the creek with my gun, first ordering the men to stand to their horses. I returned and told Smith that the creek, I thought, was full of natives. We took some tea, mounted, and rode about fifty yards when a formidable number, at least a hundred and fifty natives, jumped from the brushwood in the creek, making after us for some miles. We escaped them and met others, but none would approach us. No inducement could persuade them. We chased one to endeavour to make him find water for us near Mount Rouse. He ran fast and got to a tree, climbing it like a monkey, and letting fly behind on some of the party as he ascended to his utmost satisfaction. We were eighteen days before we reached Portland after leaving Port Ferry. On our left we met many obstructions on the flat grounds and large swamps in that part of the country, which is intersected so much by two small rivers that with difficulty, after some days of consultation as to what we should do, as our stores were all expended, whether to push on or return, we came to a determination to endeavour to gain the high ground, which we fortunately did on that evening. 
After spending a truly miserable night with nothing to eat, plenty of rain and a good fire, we were glad at daylight to proceed again, when to our great joy we saw a vessel at anchor in the bay. We descended towards the beach when our hearts failed us. We were pulled up by a large river in front of us. Another consultation took place when one of the policemen said, let us go on to the sea. In the former instance, Smith thought to keep up the river was our only plan, which we did. Smith swam across with a sabre in his mouth and got on the sand hills whence he could see the river, which close to the sea became a large lagoon. On returning, he explained it was useless to follow down. Therefore the party kept up following the river and rounding some large lagoons. In the second instance, we took the advice of an old policeman. We reached the beach, where a hard sand answered as a good road. Had we in the first instance travelled down to the beach, we could have crossed in like manner, for the river in this neighbourhood has an entrance into the sea. We reached Portland in a few hours, receiving a hearty welcome from Mrs. Henty, who kept a whaling establishment, and were the only residents in the place. I had His Excellency's order to make some investigations, and after a rest of three days, our party proceeded towards the Glenelg, to a station held by Mrs. Henty and the Mrs. Winter on the Wando River. After finishing my business in two days, we purchased some provisions to carry with us on our return home. After crossing the Wannon River, we made a new route almost east, and met with no kind of obstruction, and were only one day without water. We reached along on the fifth day after leaving the Glenelg. I may remark during this journey we did not meet with any natives. The country was desolate and uninhabited, and was covered with rich kangaroo grass, three and four feet high. At that time I considered the country beautiful, particularly in passing Mount Sturgeon, and the long range of conical hills for many miles towards what is now called Mount William. We passed Terranallum Hill, now called Mount Elephant. Since the journey, I have again visited all these parts. On the hill, Mount Sturgeon, a large stone sits in a cradle. One or two of my policemen moved the stone. It is nearly round. Terranallum has a large crater, like every other hill in this part. Also basins, some of them of great depth, and two or three miles in circumference. Three great beauties of the kind are close to Timboon. The country between Timboon and the Hopkins River would remind any person lately from home of a nobleman's park, with the expectation of coming soon to a magnificent house. Many a dreary ride I have had over this magnificent, splendid country, lying waste and idle, with an odd flock of sheep here and there, and fine fat bullocks with a hundred of square miles to roam over. This land for agricultural purposes none can surpass, and it would maintain thousands and thousands of people by common industry, with a yearly surplus of grain, enough to feed the entire population of Victoria to this 17th day of August, 1853. It lies, as formerly for years, in the hands of a few squatters at the nominal yearly rental of a squatting license, which is nothing like the value of the ground. The country for many miles about Colac nothing can surpass in its fine rich soil. The lake is in circumference about, I suppose, fourteen miles. A few years ago it became almost dry. On visiting it, it was my opinion that it would in a few years become a large swamp. Of late years it has regained its waters, so much so, in May 1852, that its banks were overflowed, the water rushing over the plains into the Barwon and Lee, and causing the wonderful flood on the 20th of May 1852. At Geelong, the Barwon River rose about twelve feet higher than the highest flood experienced since my arrival in 1837, destroying a vast deal of property, and carrying the bridge away on Barwon River, Geelong, and also several others. The squatting population consists of such various classes of persons that it is impossible to speak of it as a body. Many of the squatters are gentlemen, worthy and excellent men of undoubted character and well-connected at home. 
Mount Emu is a beautiful country. A noble pack of hounds was kept up by gentlemen squatters who met every season, hunting twice or thrice a week, and meeting at each other's houses, where good cheer and good and happy society were ever to be met. I have sat down with thirty gentlemen at Mr. Goldsmith's to an excellent dinner given by that gentleman. There was an ample provision of all that was good set before his guests, who one and all had hearty and joyful faces, talking of tomorrow and the day's sport before them. We retired to rest on our shakedowns on the floor at eleven o'clock. At daybreak the master of the hounds, a squatter, sounded his bugle, shortly after his second for breakfast, and in half an hour his third bugle, when a fine pack of dogs let loose from the kennel appeared, full of life and glee, led away by the well-known master of the hounds, Compton Ferrers, followed by thirty well-mounted gentlemen squatters. The game was not far distant. In half an hour we came upon the scent of a native dog. He had a long start. The pack took up the scent and followed breast-high. The ground was rather moist. Some horsemen were thrown out, but there were twenty in at the death, after passing over sixteen miles of ground without one check. The wild dog is noble sport, and as to the day I speak of, I doubt even if Leicestershire ever turned out a better pack or a better set of sportsmen in a field during a season. On the following day I had the pleasure of again meeting the same party, and on many occasions after this. I may now remark in a country like this, where dissipation prevails, among this class of gentlemen squatters in no instance did any man exceed or forget that he was a gentleman. Another class of squatters is a kind of shop-boys. A plain man can barely approach them. They have wonderful sources of wealth and comfort, with dirty huts and no comfort, but with plenty of pipe-smoking, grumbling and discontent. For seasons a hut would be just the same. On one side of the door you will see an aged tobacco plant, there is no garden, no vegetables, but bones, rotten sheepskins, and filth in plenty. Inside the door there was often a large hole in the mud floor worn by the heels of persons going in, and if not aware of this, ten to one that you had a chance of upsetting the table, tin dishes, and greasy mutton chops. As to beds, this gentry are not particular. I lay on one for hours in great torment, tired and wishing for sleep. I envied five or six who were snoring close about me. Sleep I could not, from something hard and long under my loins. I took my knife, cut the sacking, when I pulled out the leg of a sheep with a long piece of the hide as crisp as toast. Here is a country yielding all that man can require for only a little labour. It abounds in a class who care for nothing except self-interest. For years they have the same hut, not so much as a drop of milk. For breakfast, hyson-skin mutton chops swimming in fat and damper, damper and fat chops for dinner, hyson-skin and the same for supper. No deviation, even in Lent. Another class consists of old shepherds. I have known this class to grow rich, the master poor, and in time the worthy would become the licensed squatter. I have known many of them to become wealthy, and some who did not forget themselves, but most were out of their places, and it would have been better for the community had they remained shepherds rather than become masters. Litigation is a favourite rule, and almost anything can be gained by an overwhelming evidence. I stated that on my arrival I mustered 275 natives. So many years have passed over that at the present day, August 22, 1853, I feel assured that not more than 20 Aborigines are living about Geelong. Some were children when I came, and within the lapse of these few years have become aged and decrepit. The life of the Aborigines cannot be of long duration, and I am of opinion longevity is unknown. Baliang was held up to be more respected than any native in this place. He was remarkable for his good conduct, decency and good order. He was very polite, constantly sending presents of oysters and bustards. He was a particular friend of mine. 
by some means he became possessed of an old musket, on which I on many occasions told him to be careful or he would shoot himself, urging that it would be better for him to use his spear and boomerang. He laughed, saying the gun was better. This remarkably fine old man went to the Werribee River to shoot bustards. As he was one morning leaving his mere, on pulling the gun, the lock went off, and the contents of the charge went through his body. He died in a few minutes, leaving some three wives and four young boys. One of the boys is still living in Geelong or the neighbourhood. He cannot be more than nineteen or twenty years of age, but for a stranger to look at him, he must consider him an old man. Woolmudgeon was always with his relative, old Ballyang, until the latter died, when he lived with Mr. Fisher for some years. He was taken care of and well provided for on the establishment, his father having been killed, and his old friend Ballyang gone, so that he remained almost an inmate. As he grew rapidly, he became a man in a few years. His habits changed, he withdrew himself for weeks. On returning, he would only laugh at all questions put to him, saying, The bush better than house, plenty of grubs good as mutton. Of clothes he always had a good supply, but when he left in the morning well dressed, if he returned in the afternoon he was always naked. He placed no value on anything. The latter days of this youth, he was about twenty years of age, were spent in drunkenness and riot. He was nearly six feet high, a powerful and strong man, but disease and filth gave him the appearance of age. He died near Geelong from inflammation. Bon John, another of old Ballyang's tribe, lived with me for some four years. He was a stout lad, very civil and useful. He always attended me in the bush, and was often with me for a space of three or four months, going from one station to another, and during that time never seeing one of his tribe. I was passing Colac, and remained at Mr. Murray's for the night. The Colac tribe had a camp near at hand. Some seven men, accompanied by a couple of women, came to us covered with white paint, a death warning, the women's faces torn and bleeding, the men carrying spears, langeels and waddies. One spoke to Mr. Murray. Mr. Murray immediately told me their intention, that is, to kill my boy, Bon John. Pointing to the men, I told the boy, who in a cool way replied, I know it, I am ready for them, letting out a volley of abuse at the party. Taking his pistol and cocking it, Come on, Mary Jig, he cried to the doctor, who came for the purpose of extracting Bon John's kidney fat. He defied all. For safety, I made my boy stay inside the house all night. The natives remained lurking about for an opportunity to murder him. This animosity was caused by the death of a Colac native, which happened at a corroboree near Geelong. It was, therefore, needful that a Geelong native should die. On the following morning, a numerous collection presented themselves, demanding Bon John, with the promise not to kill him, but merely to extract the kidney fat. I asked him if he would be satisfied to undergo the operation. Me give, said he, if you wish it, showing his pistol's clean new flints and his sabre as bright and sharp as a razor. All he required from me was liberty to have a quarrel on the ground. We mounted and left. About two miles from Colac, we met some natives on their way to Colac from the mission station. Approaching us and seeing Bon John, they were quite taken aback and ran from us immediately. In fact, the party were on their way to partake of Bon John's kidney fat and femoral bits. The boy was very brave, in fact he had no fear. He begged me to let him only kill the one with the big knife, stating that he would not fire, and pointing out one who had a fine lubra, saying, If you let me kill him, I'll get his wife. I had on many occasions tried the courage of this savage boy. Near Port Ferry in 1843, a shepherd was most barbarously murdered by natives, which attracted the attention of the police. I was out for many days with a party of seventeen mounted border police. The weather was cold and wet, and we suffered in many ways. 
we were on horseback from daylight to night, examining all the creeks and stony lands between Port Ferry and Umarella. We spent ten days in this way, and not a black did we fall in with. We were compelled to give up, owing to want of provisions and sickness. On the following morning, accompanied by Bon John, we set out to seek a passage for our dray in order to get away. We went about seven miles, and meeting with great obstacles, returned in another direction, finding a far better country. When we came within two miles of our camp, on turning a tea-tree copse, we met a most powerful native, and on asking questions, he related to Bon John that the clothes he had on belonged to the dead man at Mr. Ritchie's. It was a wet day. Bon John said, This is the fellow we have been looking for. Again asking him if he had been at Mr. Ritchie's, and inquiring about the man in the clothes, we were confirmed. We threw our cloaks off. The native dashed his spear through and through Bon John's. Bon John pulled out his pistol, snapped it, and missed fire pulled out his sabre, and dashed after him, when horse and all fell among the rocks and stones in a deep gully. We had all in our power to apprehend this savage, but we could not. He had four spears, langeel and shield. With one blow, he dashed the sharp end of the langeel through my horse's nose. As we came up with him, the tribe threw many spears at us, making off. The man was left to us. Jumping on a large mound of rocks and loose stones, he howled out, "'Come on, white bastards!' at the same time throwing his last spear at Bon John. He was not to be seen in a second. This native went into Port Ferry some days after, showing his shield with the sabre-cuts on it. Some months after this, at Geelong, Bon John became quite changed. He no longer had a wish to follow me or wear his dress. Away with his tribe constantly, he came to me occasionally. He still had a strong grudge against the Colac tribe. He came to me one day, saying, One Colac fellow down here with a gin, and that he would kill him. I desired him not. He was as good as his word. He loaded a carbine, followed the unhappy black with his gun, and shot him dead. Bon John and the gin, who was now occupying his time and attention, came back, and ate, drank, and were merry. Hearing of the murder, I had Bon John apprehended. He was quite indignant, asking me if I had forgotten the tribe at Colac that wanted his kidney fat. Bon John was tried before Judge Willis, a most disreputable old rip, who I think was in consort with the devil, for though the evidence was clear, Bon John was most honourably acquitted, and handed over to another booby of fame, old Robinson, a native protector, to be educated and told not to break the commandments. Bon John was killed shortly after this, in a scurry with some natives at a corroboree. Over the body of the Colac native an inquest was held. I took Woolmudgeon to see the remains. On showing him the head, the back part of the skull being carried away, he wept bitterly and threw himself on the ground, roaring and screaming. For many days he appeared in sad distress, and long and many a time he spoke of the deed to me, always repeating the words, Poor black fellow. These natives are all dead now, and as far as I can learn only one remains of poor old Ballyang's friends. From long experience, particularly in Portland Bay District, I am convinced that the number of Aborigines in 1837 in this district could not exceed 3,000, and I feel thoroughly convinced that the race will be extinct in 20 years or less. In the district I met a native, his breast, arms and body muscular and in fine proportions, his legs were like fins and not larger than those of an infant. This poor cripple followed his tribe, travelling many miles during the day. He sat in a piece of bark tied round his loins. Emus and kangaroos on our arrival were plentiful in all parts of the district, also bustards in large flocks, from ten to thirty or forty or perhaps more. The bustards are now scarce, and only met with in distant places. The kangaroo and emu are nearly extinct in the district. The country is almost void of game. Quails in years gone by were plentiful, but I think are fast disappearing. 
Snipe we have in the season, but not in the same abundance as in other countries. We have also the painted snipe, the same bird that is met with in all parts of India. Black ducks, large and a delicacy, also various small ducks and wood ducks, etc. The bronze-winged pigeon, a fine game bird, fully equal to an English partridge. Black swans, useless and ugly. Snakes of many descriptions and some exceedingly bold, more so than I have known them in India. The longest snake I have met did not exceed six feet. For an idler or a sportsman, this country affords nothing, and for a military officer it is the most damnable quarter in the world. There is nothing in the shape of sport, except in the season a few snipe and quail, then it ends until the next September. At the approach of the snipe season, when you seek your Forsyth or Joe Manton to brush it up for the sport, it is more than probable you will seek in vain, for some good and trusty servant has made it his own. Borrowing, as it is termed, these implements is common, but once taken by this class of gentry from your house, they are never regained. Of all the impositions inflicted on mankind, an inn in the district is the most dreadful abomination. It appears to me the licensee considers only one duty, that is, to persecute and victimise the traveller. The law makes provision for decency, but the landlord disregards it after a licence is granted. His sole object is money. Not to make it honestly, by a return of common comfort, his bill is the object, and pay it you must, though five hundred per cent is overcharged. What could any man have in any part of England, staying at a hotel for a night, if he expended two pounds? I should think such an outlay among the middle classes would be unknown, but in Victoria the two pounds would not afford you a nobbler. You have to put up with the curses of an ill-looking ruffian, the landlord, who heartily wishes that you never again trouble him, as he is not over-fond of gentlemen beggars. The landlord is generally to be seen playing quoits in the front of the hut, with a pipe in his mouth, cursing and swearing, and surrounded by half a dozen idle drunken men, the stable-keeper always sticking close to his master, to swear by him right or wrong, for a nobbler. These games amuse some travellers, for a fight is generally the result. And in almost all instances, as one passes through the country, the landlord sports a black eye or two. The interior of the hut is generally built of wood and weatherboards. The floor is boarded, and a fine rattling breeze rushes in at all parts. Your company is not very refined, all smoking, spitting, singing loudly and rioting, cursing and damning the governors and formerly crowned lands commissioners. Horse races for saddles and bridles and cockfights are got up, you are told of fine bullock drivers, and that Tim was the fellow to shear sheep, with flat contradictions now and again, which nearly lead to a bout, but often to the destruction of the landlord's all, in the shape of a half-dozen wine-glasses and his large assortment of tin pannikins. In short, one of these licensed huts may be turned inside out during a row, and be nothing the worse for it on the following morning. A fortune is realised soon in one of these district hotels, and when made, the landlord sells his goodwill of the place, always to a very good man, in short, the best man in the world, who once installed, is found to be a deeper vagabond than the former. These huts, though built on government land, are private property, transferred from one to another. Many pay for the goodwill eight hundred pounds, the house not being in value worth thirty pounds. A thousand pounds is commonly paid down, and I have known one thousand five hundred pounds paid in cash for a hut of this kind. The stable, as it is called, is a place tossed up of all manner of things. It has a kind of a roof, with slab sides of the rudest material, and is often dangerous in passing from old spike-nails and broken bottles. Dung and filth are there a foot or two deep. At the head of the stall is an old gin-case fixed as a manger for oaten hay. 
If you neglect your poor horse, not a bite of straw will he get. And if you order some oats to feed him, the hostler is generally nimble in getting and giving. He on this occasion is more than civil, as a profit falls to him, the corn being generally found by him, and the more profit the better for him. This worthy has his measure, and fills it to the brim. At the bottom he has his thumb-hole, whereby he deposits the best part back for himself. A man who has a horse almost has to fight for his grub, paying dear for it. At the present time, the expenses for a night for one horse in a bush inn will cost the owner twenty shillings. A licensed man keeping a bush inn can charge as he thinks fit. But his great game formerly, before the goldfields, was the shepherd or hut-keeper on his way to town, with his cheque for perhaps a year or two years' wages. This unfortunate man was generally overwhelmed with kindness, made drunk, and kept so for three, four, or five days. On regaining his senses, he naturally seeks his hard earnings, which are not to be found. He applies to the landlord, who tells him that he is in debt, that the sixty pounds is expended. On asking, how? repeats the host, do you forget the shout you stood, the shout for all hands? You are in my debt now, five pounds, and I shall keep your gun and pack until I am paid, says the landlord, pushing the unhappy fellow from his door, perhaps without a rag to his back. For a new colony, only eighteen years inhabited, I consider that there is more vice than is to be found in any part of the world. On my arrival in Melbourne in 1837, Captain Lonsdale, 4th K.O. Regiment, was a police magistrate, having a guard of soldiers, some forty men. The captain had a very small wooden hut, the military one nearly as bad. The few houses about are unworthy of notice, excepting the police office. This was a square building, or nearly so. The walls were sods, and the roof was covered with sods, without windows or a door. From this rude state of things and a lapse of sixteen years, the town of Melbourne has become a large, a populous, and almost an overgrown city, with a population of eighty thousand, and the surrounding country for miles covered with houses. In the annals of history, nothing equals the rapid progress of this wonderful place. The great mistake my good and worthy friend Sir Richard Burke made is in not placing Melbourne where Geelong is. In 1853, Oaten Hay sold at thirty-five pounds a tonne, Oats, sold at one pound one shilling a bushel. Potatoes, sold at thirty pounds a tonne, or one pound fifteen shillings per bag. Beef, sold at seven pence a pound. Mutton, sold at eight pence a pound. Turkeys, sold at two guineas or three on some days. Firewood, cost from four to five pounds a load. Cart horses, sold at one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty pounds. Saddle horses, fifty to eighty pounds. Goats, sold at two pounds. Eggs, sold for five shillings a dozen. Cabbages, sold at two shillings sixpence each. A servant cost sixty pounds yearly. In 1848, twelve fine legs of mutton, sold at five shillings. Beef, prime, at one and a half pence per pound, mutton less. Oat and hay, at three pounds per ton. Oats, at two shillings sixpence per bushel. Potatoes, at four shillings per hundred. Turkeys at three shillings sixpence each. Fowls were to be had for nothing. Eggs at sixpence per dozen. Good horses sold from ten pounds to thirty pounds. Goats at two shillings. Cabbages at six for a shilling. Firewood at seven shillings a load. A servant in house cost eighteen pounds yearly. As to Geelong, with many advantages over Melbourne, it is exceedingly backward. The trade of this place compared with Melbourne is a mere nothing. Our merchants are few, but good, honest, sterling men. 
but suffering as they do, great discontent prevails. Our ships and our letters generally go first to Melbourne. The only obstacle to our shipping is the bar. For years and years application has been made by the inhabitants to the government for assistance in clearing it away. Not one shilling has been expended, excepting by the inhabitants, who have paid surveyors' expenses time after time. Their work hangs in an office, and the bar remains untouched, and is very likely to remain so for long and many a day. If this bar was removed, and shipping came up to the town, Geelong must become a place of vast importance. It has a fine harbour, and great advantages over Melbourne. That most excellent Governor-General, Sir Richard Burke, made a choice, and placed Melbourne where it stands. He also visited Geelong. He was delighted with the place and the country. He remained fourteen days, and having confirmed the site of Melbourne, I suppose he did not wish to alter it. This is to be lamented, for if Melbourne had been placed where Geelong stands, it would become as beautiful a city as is in the world. The locality is pleasing, cheerful, beautiful and healthful, with a fine rising situation, the scenery grand and magnificent. Melbourne does not possess one of these advantages, lying low, with bad approaches on every side. Geelong increases but slowly. A few years ago, the census gave a population of 7,000, but at the present time there must be a population of 25,000, which daily increases from all parts of the world. Notwithstanding the mix of people, the place is exceedingly orderly. We have four small steamboats between this and Melbourne daily, making fortunes for their owners. Large vessels lie at Point Henry, four miles across the bay, but small vessels under 300 tons come to the jetty and discharge. The chief trade of the town, until the times changed so much on account of the gold mania, was wool, tallow and hides. Wool was a considerable item in the shipments. From 25,000 to 30,000 bales were embarked yearly at Point Henry, in large ships, from 700 to 2,000 tons. But from the effects of the gold mines, I am of opinion that a great decrease will take place in the shipments of this article. You are aware of all the gold fields, the ruin of the colony. I shall never forget Mr. Wentworth, the watch-house is not fitted for a gentleman, and his bow to his honour, the superintendent, who was sitting in the corner of the slab-hut on a stool with three legs, his honour's graceful recognition of the salute, his honour rising with dignity when the stool upset making a noise to the disgust of Mr. Pat McKeever, chief constable of Little Peddlington. The death of the black horse, the vet doctor, the CCL in giving copious glisters and bleeding, his honour sighing, the vet privately telling him there is no hope, the burial in paddock with a case of bricks to the memory of the departed. I remember well the doctor coming to the hut when we were at dinner. Here comes that infernal rip. Doctor enters. Host rises to greet him. How are you, doctor? Sit down and partake of something. We are so glad to see you, with a hearty shake of the hand. This paper is not signed, but has evidently been written by Captain Foster Fyans, Editor. End of Letter 18